Are you ready to learn? Because my super experienced guests are ready to share some really valuable information. Make sure and listen all the way to the end to get help and support. So let's start with the best audio experience. Hello, guys. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to our show. Good people. Welcome. By the way, I don't want to discriminate bad people. Welcome to our show as well. Anyone who want to learn more about marketing, sales, and learning customers' behavior, welcome, because it's very important today to know your customers, to set up the right message, to market the right people. And I'm so excited to discuss this topic. Salup, how are you? Hi, how are you, Anatoly? I'm doing great. Um, it's a bit rainy today, but we're doing great in Miami. It's cool. Nice. So it isn't like 900 degrees outside. And, you know, I'm, I'm very happy. So uh, thank you very much for having me. And it's your show, man. Take the lead. Marcelo, uh, I want to start from your experience. You spoke on my podcast. I know about your experience, but tell our audience, remind about yourself, how you learned customer's behavior and any about your business, any tips about your business. I don't have that long of a memory and I'm really ancient. No, so for real. So I started, uh, I started my creative life, so to speak, as a professional rock and roll photographer. Mm -hmm. And I love, absolutely, utterly love it. And I still do it, by the way. I still go out every week to at least one, maybe two heavy metal, heavy rock show. Then I went into the agency side. I went on the creative side and I went as a copywriter, lowly copywriter. I was the bottom of the, like the bottom of the bottom. Okay. I, I was like, nobody. And I found out something incredible in those days. People would write ads, especially headlines, you know, like as an advertiser, without talking to people. So I think that the worst example in the world was a guy who was my boss, a very nice Argentine called, uh, this is in Madrid, um, called uh, Hector Giovannoni. And he would just write ads. You know, he, like, for example, we were doing a campaign for Alitalia and he would be writing ads, you know, headlines for people to go to Cortina d'Ampezio and to other places. And one day I asked him, you know, have you ever been to Cortina d'Ampezio? Do you even know what it is? No. Well, I have. I have actually skied in Cortina d'Ampezio and I've skied in many other places. You have no clue why people go there. People don't go there for the skiing. People go there so they can see beautiful people and show off. That's why you go to Cortina d'Ampezio and that's why you go to... I don't know, a bunch of other places like that. If you want to go skiing, you just go skiing to professional places to go skiing. I don't know, Zermatt or something like that. So, you know, I, I, started, I, I started thinking about it, you know, like, what should we do? Then I got my big break. I launched the uh, Renault 5TS as a creative in Spain. And it was great because everybody was saying about, you know, buying the car, buying the car, buying the car. And I figured, nah, that's not the purpose of advertising. The purpose of advertising is to get you to a car dealer. The car dealer sells the car. The only thing I, I need to do is for you to, to be curious about what the Renault 5 TS is all about. And then, you know, you go to a Renault dealer and you say, hey, I'd like to see the TS. And then maybe he sells you the TS. Maybe he doesn't sell you the TS. It's his problem. My only purpose in life is if I get you there. Fast forward, I went into media. Then I went into uh, many other things, management, high-level management, blah, 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 all of that. But throughout the whole point of the career is what is the consumer supposed to do? And I would say if I were to start somewhere, 
in, in the whole chain is understanding really well what action do you want the consumer to take? This is super. I mean, this is not, you know, like some ancient discussion, you know, from a 65, 68-year-old creative, you know, with white hair and an Alfa Romeo and, you know, all of this traffic. This is for real because I just had a discussion maybe three weeks ago with the marketing coordinator of one of my clients and she goes, well, we're getting a lot of clicks. Okay. Are we getting sales? No, but we're getting clicks. Wow. Okay. Are we getting people to fill up, you know, the contact form so we can input them into the drip campaign for the email so we can contact them and then they can call our people? No, but we're getting a CTR of 1%. It's worth it. And I told her, listen, you, ha- you are the poster person for, um, you know, vanity metrics. So essentially, and, and I spoke to the client a lot about this, the whole purpose of the, the campaign was for somebody to fill out a form. So the form would be uh, sent to the person who was in charge of contacting the clients. This is for a client that delivers treatment for children with autism. And then somebody calls. The whole purpose of the advertising campaign is to generate leads. It is not to generate clicks. It is not to generate CTR. It is not to generate engagement, whatever you measure it by. It's to get leads. So often I have found, and this goes for decades, often you find that people don't really know what behavior the consumer should have as a result of your advertising. So I I guess that would be my very first, I would say, brick in building this foundation or my very first information nugget. Um, Nice. From there, then I I founded with my co-founder, Adi, a company called CEO Analytics, which essentially boiled down to, okay, fine, you know all of this. Why are people making those decisions? So... There's many things. I, I did my, my master's thesis in, in Spain with a really nifty title, Brainwashing, Attitude Change, and the Relation to Advertising. That's what I did. And I was very interested in brainwashing, mainly because, you know, first of all, it's forbidden, right? Then I was curious about it. Like, are we really brainwashing people? Like, w- w- when I buy, let's say, you know, like all of my friends, we were a tribe. I had a Bultaco um, motorcycle. So everybody in my tribe had Bultacos, everybody. And by the way, everybody had a Bultaco Cherpa. I was one of the two people with a Bultaco Alpina because I didn't like Trial. But everybody had a Bultaco. And I was wondering, is this really brainwashing or, you know, is this further than that? Like nobody had a Montesa, nobody had a Sanglas, you know, that kind of thing. So I did my thesis on that. And one of the things I found was that behavior can be modified in a very quantifiable way. And that is attitudinal. It is not motivational. We all have our motivations. It could be that my motivation for having, I don't know, like at one point in my life, I had a Camaro Z28, which is a real muscle car. Could be my motivation for having that car was that, you know, I'm very short. I'm only like 5'5". So I needed to look bigger than life. I don't know. But somebody else could have other motivations. But the attitude was measurable we all have the same attitude towards muscle cars. And by the way, I have followed that. And my, my subsequent uh, number of cars were like an Audi S4, two turbos, muscle car, BMW 335, two superchargers, muscle car. I had a Porsche Boxster, 
and now I have an Alfa Romeo twin turbo. It's a Giulia, again, muscle car. So you can measure those attitudes. But what happens is one of the things we transitioned to as part of the digital world was a, uh, a very high dependency on mathematical or sales-oriented data. So people say, well, you know, like 52% of my consumers do this or 35 do that or, you know, these consumers buy three of these, four of that. And then you wonder, okay, so, but why? What's the point? Like, why are they buying this? And what do you tell them? So that they buy more or more often or more expensive so you can cross-sell, upsell, and, you know, sell more. So I found that a, a lot of the uh, CDPs, uh, a lot of the customer data platforms were focusing too much on the mathematical trappings of it. Oh, this is, you know, the patterns, but nobody knew the why. So we created uh, a technology to find out the why. Why are you doing this? So we do that by combining something uh, really arcane. It's called disassociated conjoint analysis. And anybody who has had a client that is uh, a telco, you know, like cell phones or anything as sales packages, you know, like fast food or whatever, is probably very familiar with conjoint analysis because conjoint analysis is, hey, would you buy this combination for this price or that combination for that price? And then mathematically, you mix them all up and you say, well, this combination has the maximum amount of people who would buy it and it also maximizes our profits. And that's the one you go out with. Not necessarily the most expensive because if the most expensive has less buyers, you don't want that. So it's a maximization of customer choice and then price or profits. But we created something that delivered those kind of questions one by one. So we isolated the survey from a, a lot of uh, the biases, you know, the content bias, the order bias, all of that. So we have that. And al along the way then, you know, like I, I tend to really apply that to, you know, to my clients. Like right now we're working with a, uh, a chain of 30 restaurants and we are even using that to really determine the positioning. So a lot of people say a lot of things in restaurants, home cooked. I don't know about you, maybe your mom is fantastic, but let, let me tell you, man, my grandmother was the worst cook in the world. She couldn't cook to save her life. My mom was like the worst cook after her. And my, my mom was an awful cook. Actually, we had a full-time cook in the house. We had a cook, a maid, and a chauffeur. So to me, home-cooked means awful. Like, I would never eat that. And then if I go to a restaurant, I, I want professional people to do professional food. I don't want home food. So one of the things we did is we tested that positioning statement versus other positioning statements using this associated conjoint analysis. Even the client hasn't seen it because we haven't finished the dashboard. But yesterday I was looking at the dashboard. I was looking at the data. And food from scratch beats home-cooked any day in this, in, with this particular group. So we have that. And then the third part, which I also learned early on, was so now you have what you want your customer to do. I want you to choose this toothpaste or I want you to choose a Samsung or I want you to choose whatever. So you have that. Then you have, okay, so this is the driver for that decision. But now you have the other part. We're not a mass of people at all. Even, you know, like if you get 100 people like me, we're still not the same. 
even if you get 100 people like me. So the other aspect of understanding why your consumer moves is to understand that little segment of the consumer. Many years ago, when I was rehired by Foodfana Building, I was lucky enough to participate in a, 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 like a massive, massive study, which we call Constellations. And I was lucky, I just fell into it. It was, we were five of us, four of them were geniuses, like the best people you've ever seen. I was, I, I felt like uh, that guy in, in the movie that compared life to chocolates, that kind of guy. I don't know what I was doing there, but I was lucky enough. I found, you know, a little niche in there. But one of the things we did is we started looking at the population. This was in 2001. Started looking at the population in terms of homogeneous characteristics and heterogeneous groups. So we, we looked at the U.S., and we ran correlation analysis on the entire population. And we wound up with like, I don't know, 50 something groups, which could be down to like 30 something groups. So one of the things then that I learned from it was there are, there are very, very distinct groups in every one of your targets that might not necessarily be, be moved by what everybody else is moved. So when we do analysis, when we do uh, disassociated conjoint analysis today, we also do it using demographic characteristics. And it stands to reason. I mean, you, you, you look around and, you know, like a, a woman who is, let's say, 30 years old of Hispanic descent who lives in East L.A. cannot really make this, doesn't make decisions using the same drivers as a woman who is, I don't know, 30 years old, white, and lives in Iowa. They're very diff it's different universes. I mean, Iowa, yeah. East LA. I've never been to Iowa, by the way. I imagine Iowa, but I know East LA. So yeah, it's, it's a different world. So, so that's the, the three things, right? First, you need to define what it, what it is exactly that you want your customer to do at the end of the communication. Two, find the drivers, and three, segment the population so that you have drivers that are very exclusive to that group. And then that increases your odd of somebody making the decision that you need them to, to make. Nice. You know, I can feel, I can feel my feeling that, uh, you know, uh, when I listen to you, I can feel that uh, I'm reading a book because you you can share stories <laughs> and you can summarize in the end you know all your points love it so yeah valuable okay marcella uh my next question about vanity metrics you mentioned about vanity metrics and i often see when people uh, use keyword research tools like samrush ihrefs many others and when uh, they see high volume they can feel it wow i can get all this traffic uh, I need it, but in the end, we have two points. The first, it's hard. It's really hard to get this traffic. In the second point, uh, it doesn't mean that you can sell by getting this traffic. Uh, uh, for example, uh, once I spoke with a master who got 400,000 traffic, a lot of traffic. But after losing this traffic, when Google dropped his website ranking positions, uh, he didn't lose any sales. So he got a lot of traffic, but this traffic didn't sell. Uh, and you mentioned a lot about that. Can you tell about the right metrics, not vanity metrics uh, that will 
because you know when people uh, are looking for getting more likes comments uh, traffic but uh, as you mentioned it's more important to think how many leads and sales you can get any tips about choosing the right metrics yeah so one of the and i'm gonna go back like 30 years for a moment the number one metric and i've seen this in research everywhere that drives volume for a brand is the reach it's obvious and and they had a i can't remember who wrote that but he had a fantastic phrase which said small brands grow because people try them big brands grow because people buy them again and that is very true let's say I'm, i i can tell you two things one of them is when when i launched uh colgate total in mexico we had zero share i mean we didn't exist and there we were we launched it and by the way the only goal was to reach something like 6.2 percent so stupid number like that like six percent of the market so i figured we should you know like if one in five people buy colgate which is probably even more like one in four something like that one in six one, one in three we should reach four times what we want so people try us and then they, they remain today fast forward 30 years and it's pretty much the same thing let's say you're selling i don't know i i i've seen clients i i, I was partner in a cdp company and they had like the weirdest clients but let's say you're selling um boxer shorts underwear that is directed at lesbians that's a real company by the way it's called Waxer, and they sell eighty thousand dollars a month get that eighty thousand dollars a month so there you have a person who has a viable business by being very niche but even then how do you sell more well you gotta reach more people who would buy your boxers that's the only way no you know like you're not going to drive a, a, a huge amount of sales into the same person even fast food doesn't do it you would think you know fast food i mean you you could go every day to a mcdonald's but the fact is you don't you have a rotation so i would say in every single case that i've seen whether it is boxer short underwears aimed at lesbians or cars or soft drinks or anything the number one driver is the reach the number two driver is the message i i reach this i gotta have a message so to me the number one metric and you cannot metrify the message so i would say the number one metric for me is reach how many people are we reaching then the second one is whatever the cost of achieving the action that i said is so let's take two extremes i i was part of the team that launched general motors in argentina there was no general motors and then there was general motors and we sold thirty-nine thousand whatever cars i don't know thirty-nine thousand six hundred, whatever some ungodly amount of cars so the number one goal was getting people to of course first have an awareness of the car because you know we're starting from scratch but that's kind of bullshit. awareness is your least common denominator we were trying to get people to go to a dealer and try out a car you know just get in the car so what is the cost of doing that and we spent x amount of million doing that and we were successful and we met the, the goal so if the action that we wanted was to get people into the dealerships to try a car 
then my only metric after the number of people I reach is how many actually try the car, how much did I spend, and what is the, the, the cost of doing that. With, um, I don't know, with, with, with this company that I had as a client that um, just, you know, they deliver, um, you know, therapy for children with autism, uh, it's very specific therapy, ABA, which is uh, behavioral therapy. Then again, it was not the number of clicks or the CTR. It was for the amount of money that I spent, what is the cost of somebody joining the, uh, the, the wait list? Because there was a wait list. So, you know, we, we measure it by people joining the, uh, the, the wait list. So in, in every single case, it is my cost of achieving the action that I determined from the beginning that would drive my sales. And I only... I basically look at that. I mean, like, for example, for DirecTV, I did the acquisitions for three and a half years or three years, something like that. My team was buying 69,000 television spots a year for people. So we worked them. We really worked those people. And the only measure we had was how much are we spending and how many sales are we closing? Not even the value of the sales, because we, we knew that the value of the sales on the average was anywhere from $1,900 to $2,000 because it was, you know, two-year contracts. And we certainly kept track of it. It was just how many people, you know, are buying this and how much we're spending on that. Uh, this was many years ago, so I can talk about the figures. Uh, DirecTV told us that the maximum allowable cost per subscription was at around $285, $386. We use that as a barometer, and then we try to beat the uh, the average. We achieve three hundred and sixty-eight dollars, more or less. But that's it. It's how many people, and every morning, by, by, by the way, the how many people is so key. I designed like three generations of software to keep track of it, you know, dashboards. And every morning, and I, I'm still friends with the guy who owned the agency, who was I, I own ten percent. The, the guy who was the majority owner, and, and I I am not only still friends. We're still doing business together, and he moved about three blocks from me in Riviera Drive. So this was something that was very real. Every morning, we would go in, 8 o'clock in the morning, turn on the computer, dashboard comes in, and we would look at, oh, yeah, we had so many television spots. We generated X amount of calls. We generated X amount of closing ratio. Was it better or worse? And then we generated X amount of sales, and that's it. So we knew the spots. The closing ratio was so we could keep track, but we knew the spots, meaning we knew the money, and then we knew the sales, and that's it. That's what we looked at. Then we would look at the creative that generated the sales, and we were heartless about it. And we were joking about that on Monday. I, I went to his house for another business on Monday. We are joking about it. We used to film, and that's another thing I learned about the messaging. If it doesn't work, throw it away. So we used to do 22... One, on an average, on a yearly basis, we would do 22 television spots. But we would throw away 15 of those. They didn't work. You know, we would run them. They didn't work out. Today, the same principle applies where we look at many creatives and we test them. So I have a phrase that I used to have in my office. Uh, the only people who know everything are the people who know nothing. Everybody else tests. So when I launched the NFTs, for example, in Cyprus for the Listen campaign, not only did we create many creatives, 
we had many creative lines. So we had a, a like a very dignified music line. And then I had a very undignified uh, line that my boss hated. I don't know. Are you familiar with the board Ape Yacht Club? No. Okay, so it's one it's the most famous NFT in the world. Um uh, yeah, probably I'm not good with NFT, but <laughs> so it was really famous. So I, I had a uh, I had a video and then I had ads. Mm -hmm. One half of it was uh, this uh this monkey that was yawning and it had a headline bored monkey and then the other side was a really beautiful you know beautiful great looking ape you know, big or big ape intelligent mm -hmm. ape so we had the bored monkey intelligent ape find your nfts at nft.listencampaign.com we tried that we tried dignified we tried other ones we tried all of the campaigns the end result of that I went from 35 to 50 people a day visiting the website. And this one, I'm not going to talk about the sales. So we, the, the visits, I can talk to. The, we had 35 to 50 visitors a day before the campaign started. We ran all of the campaigns at the same time, knowing that people would kind of self-select the campaign that they most felt, you know, that clicked with them. And we went from 35 to 50 to 14,300 people a day in three days. And that is the power of understanding what action you want your consumer to take. I just want to go. I just wanted to go into the website. That's my job. The designer of the website, his job was to make sure that the buying process, you know, was flawless. The designer of the NFTs, his job was to make sure that the NFTs were you know, what they wanted to buy, that's not my job. My job is to take them into the website, and I did. So I took from 35 to 14,300. And then the cost was negligible. We didn't spend that much money doing that. So, you know, I applied those lessons like every time, like every day. To me, the, the only metrics are the reach, how many people are we reaching, so we know conversions and the cost of achieving whatever action we designed that we wanted or we decided that we wanted to uh that the customer to take oh for a moment nice. i was hearing rain and it's my my window yeah. it's <laughs> raining oh my god ah uh, me too i can show my view ah okay yeah it's yeah. yeah it's raining as well <laughs> so i i don't know if you can see it from my view but it's the same thing i mean it's really uh, crazy man so so those are the metrics nice nice yeah awesome awesome marcella you you're the best storytelling uh expert ever you know because i love listening your stories yeah you're good with that uh, and uh you know i want to ask about uh finding the balance between companies that are selling products and customers it's interesting for example if i put on customers shoes i want to get simple message uh, to hook my attention because i have no time to read uh, all benefits all features that products have but uh in uh, another side companies that want to sell almost anything to tell our products are great we have this 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 many many benefits so can you tell how to find the balance between simplicity, personalization, and 
tell about important things that customers needed? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Actually, that is the question that I would definitely chain a bunch of creatives to a wall. And I would ask him that question. And if they didn't answer it correctly, I would probably just break, you know, like a toe or something. It is the essential question in, in, in marketing. How do you achieve that balance? My way is I have one message per ad. That's it. Mm -hmm. Way back. Again, way back. I was like a nobody. And let me tell you, all of, the, all of these things, they have added not only to my knowledge base, they have actually added a lot of money to my bank account. Mm -hmm. I, I just visited my, uh, I, actually like four hours ago, I went to see my uh, private banker because I have a private banker. And Mr. Private Banker told me, oh, don't worry about it. If you die at 100, you still have money. So the lessons are for real. I mean, you, you actually succeed in business by doing this. So when I was a kid, we were launching the uh, Renault something or other um, furgonetas, you know, those, those little wagons that were really popular in Spain back in the uh, 70s, you know, small little cheap wagons, you know. So I can't remember the name. So I, I, there, there were three things that the wagons were famous for. One of them, they were cheap. Like you could buy one of those wagons for like nothing. They were business, okay? They, they used by, you know, like bread bakers and, you know, carpenters. They all had those little wagons. Uh, so they were cheap. They didn't use a, a lot of gas. And as you know, in Europe, we measure gas by, you know, liters per kilometer, per 100 kilometers. Yeah. Not like the Americans. Americans have miles per gallon. And I never, like, I don't know. <laughs> I still don't understand how to measure it. <laughs> Neither do I. Like, I, I get in my car and, you know, it says my, my specific car only gets about 15 miles per gallon in the city. And I never know. Is that good, bad, whatever? So I just, I don't know. But... We know, I know that in Europe, because we measure it on a liters per 100 kilometers, everything is very easy to, to compare. And then the third thing that the wagons had was they're very reliable. They don't break, which is great because you don't want downtime. So they, they're creative. And by the way, I, I joined the company when I was 22, uh, Kenya and Eckert in Spain. I joined them at 22 as the lowest of the low, nothing awful guy you know like bottom of the barrel copywriter like i was nobody i didn't even have a cubicle i had a desk not even a cubicle i didn't qualify for shit in six months i was the head of copywriters because of stuff like this so i went out and i talked to people and you realize people don't remember five things at a time so instead of having you know one ad with all of the things oh we do this and we do that and we do this and we he said, okay, one ad, one thing. So we had an ad and it only said, this thing has, you know, like, I don't know, uses 5.6 liters per 100 kilometers. Everything else, that's for another ad. That's it. Another ad said they never break. They're very re reliable in, in a creative way, but like essentially it never breaks. And another one just had the price. This is cheap. It only costs whatever, you know. 20,000 pesetas or, or whatever in those days. And it's the same thing today. So that instead of having, I don't know, ads that say many things, I'm a fan of, for example, uh, I, I'm a real fan, by the way, of uh, dynamic creative optimization. 
Because with DCO, what you do is you take a whole bunch of things, you know, headlines, body text, color schemes, pictures, CTA, whatever. The computer mixes them, but it mixes them in one single app. And then you throw them out. And then in a week, you realize this combination actually pays off. This one doesn't pay off. But I always keep it like that, one single thing per ad. And it works everywhere. I'm, I'm a fan of, photo well, I started as a professional photographer and I still photograph. And I tell people it's the same thing in a picture. A picture can only have one single focal point. That's it. It's either this or that, but you cannot have two focal points in a picture because it really distracts you. It's the same thing in advertising. The person in front of you, you want that person to do something. Go to a dealer, buy this toothpaste, you know, download this app, whatever you want them to do. Who knows what's going to turn them on? And that's why you have many variations. But the balance is that. The, the balance is you run one, and then you run another one, and then you run another one. You figure out which one works better, and that's it. For, for Equifax, when I launched Equifax for the Hispanic market in the U.S., it was the same thing. We tried two different campaigns, and every one of the campaigns had like six different ads, and all of the ads had a single message. So we ran essentially 18 ads at the same time, and then you know a week later, we went back and we said... But by the way, it was using programmatic advertising and dynamic creative optimization. And that was like 10 years ago. So it was like brand new and we took a chance and we used it. One week later, we went in and we said, okay, so this is selling. All of this is not selling, scrap it. So that's how I achieved the, uh, the, the, the balance. You go in really heavy at the beginning, you select mm -hmm. the combination that works the best, you scrap everything else in a heartless, ruthless way, and then you build on your success. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Yeah, great tip. Okay, uh, I want to ask you about writing headline. You mentioned about headline, uh, titles, uh, whatever. Uh, you know, uh, I remember a story when uh, an author published a book, uh, but sales was not great. So, uh, yeah, and then he changed the title of the book. And the second, but he didn't change any words on this book, just the title. Then this book uh, was sold uh, plus million copies. You know, because when people got the first title, that was boring. Uh, this book didn't catch attention. After changing the title, uh, it provoked curiosity. Can you tell how to write such headline title? Because you mentioned about title. And uh, for example, I usually... Uh, read a lot of blog articles, but I have uh, not a lot of time, just uh, some time a day if I have it uh, because of many other things to do. That's why I usually check out headlines and I decide, okay, I can read it. It's probably it can help me or not. I don't know, but uh, I choose by reading headlines. So can you tell how to write headline that people can't skip, that people uh, that provoke curiosity to open and consume? Okay, fine. I can tell you, but then who's going to hire me if I tell you my secrets? <laughs> no, it's very easy. Talk to people. I talk to people a lot. My wife hates that. Okay. So some of them are really funny. Some of them are embarrassing. Uh, we launched um, Fuerza Viva for Colgate in Mexico. So Fuerza Viva is a line of things. But essentially, it's a detergent. It also has uh, dishwashing liquids and stuff. But like, it's a detergent, right? 
And it goes all the way from Fuerza Viva Ultra Concentrate, which is very expensive, but highly concentrated, all the way from there to a Fuerza Viva soap bar, which is a typical soap bar. And then you use it to clean clothes, you know, like the old fashioned way. And I remember just going in and talking to women in supermarkets. You know, I see somebody buying, and th this was a very funny one. I, I see so somebody buying a um, one for her. Well, I didn't know one was for her. A very expensive carton of Fuerza Viva Ultra, Super Ultra. And then they bar. And I ask her, point blank, hey, why are you buying both? You're buying a 16 peso thing, you know, the Ultra Concentrado. And then you're buying a one peso bar. Why? One is for me. One is for the maid. You know, one is for the family. The family uses the good detergent. The maid uses, you know, the cheap detergent. You start talking to people and they give you insights as to why they buy. And then all you need to do, really, honestly, is return those words to them in a nice way. You know, like you wouldn't say that. But it, I don't know. Like, and I bombed on this one. Like, I, I was a copywriter on the uh, relaunch of Iberia in 1976 or 77. Iberia was, of course, a national airline, meaning it got no respect. And then, of course, when they changed the colors, it, it was terrible. People were saying, blah, 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 you know, the old colors, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. And I, you know, we came in with a whole bunch of, of headlines at the beginning. Nothing clicked until I started traveling a lot because I could travel for free in Iberia Airlines. Nothing clicked until I started traveling and I started talking to people as to why they were you know, traveling with Iberia. So, you know, based on that, we discovered a lot of uh, destination type of traveling. I'm going to the beach, I'm going to this. And I changed the entire thing. One of them was a very, one of my favorite ones. Some guy, I can't remember, in Peru, I think, tells me, you know, I have, I have Morriña for, for Spain. Morriña is a Galician word that is like home. It literally means homesickness, but there's mm -hmm. a very emotional attachment to Morriña. La Morriña is that deep homesickness that makes you long for your home country. So we created this cheap uh, rate for, um, for immigrants coming from Latin America into Spain. And I call it La Tarifa, la tarifa Antimorriña, the anti-homesickness rate. Instant hit. Why? Because, uh, you know, people tell you, I have Morriña. So, you know, I have this longing for, for my, uh, you know, for my country. And then the, the other one, same thing. I talked to people. I, I relaunched Ecuatoriana de, de, de Aviación, which is the Ecuadorian National Airlines. And at the time, Eastern Airlines and Barry were like the number one and number two airlines in, in, in Ecuador. And everybody wanted to travel in them because they're foreign airlines, you know, they're prestigious airlines. And Ecuatoriana was bottom of the barrel, you know, the Indian you know, airline, you know, mm -hmm. para los indios and stuff, you know, like low class people. And so I, I remember what I learned in my, in my uh, master's thesis when, when I did on brainwashing, I, I figured ah, we should try something like this. So I created a, a, a line that said, excellent election, excellent choice. It's bullshit. Nobody chose it. What happened was people 
were buying Ecuatoriana when they couldn't find tickets in Eastern or in Barrick. So the last choice was Ecuatoriana. So we told them, excelente elección. But it was a whole package. You know, people answered the phone in Ecuatoriana saying, hi, this is Ecuadorian Airlines, excellent choice. And we sort of created that. And then people were saying, oh, yeah, you know, I made that excellent choice. But it was, I heard it from people. It's my choice, my last choice, but it was a choice. And then we returned it to them in their same language, but, you know, in a bit nicer way. And that's how you write in great headlines. You got to talk to people. If, you, if you're going to be on the creative side, and today I think all of us are the, the creative side because a lot of the buying is essentially automated. A lot of it is just programmatic advertising that just flows or search. And searches today, it's, I don't know, I use chat GPT to generate search. I don't know about you, but I go in, I go like, chat, give me 20 search ads for this product. And then, bah, 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 bah. so we get 20, we try them out, whatever works, works, whatever doesn't work, doesn't work. And then anything in the middle, we also say, yeah, it didn't work. And I use use automation. So today we're all creatives. So the issue with creatives is just talk to people. You got to be an extrovert. I'll talk to anybody anywhere. I, I can go to a bar and I do go to bars a lot. Like tonight I'm going to a heavy metal bar uh, at nine o'clock. So you go to bar, I'll talk to anybody. There's somebody in the bar, I'll talk to that person. And that's how you learn what makes people tick. And what makes people tick is what you need to write to get them to do whatever you need them to do whether it is buy the toothpaste or try the car or you know like download the app nice yeah love it love it Marcela, you mentioned about chat gpt ai that was simple to ignore hard today impossible tomorrow <laughs> we yes. have our ai tool that can help to create content for all website pages uh and uh in our website it's called golden button guys it's not it's not golden button <laughs> it's just uh, the way how you can get a lot of content at scale that you need to optimize to provide something new valuable insights so because ai uh, just uh, i think ai uh, is not creative but you mentioned about creativity many times i even lost track how many times you uh Talked about creativity, uh, and you use ChatGPT uh, in another way. So, can you tell how to use AI today to be creative? This tool can help to be creative, or it's better to use in other ways. Well, I don't know about the other ways. I, I haven't. Well, I do. Uh, actually, three years ago, maybe four, uh, a guy called Chris Gexi who is a PhD in risk management, established a group that is called, and I have it right here in front of me. Wait, wait. Forefront Analytics. Mm -hmm. So my personal banker comes to me and says, hey, so I joined, uh, this is with AXA, I joined this group, um, Forefront Ana Analytics. I want you to meet Chris. He invented an AI bot that rebalances portfolios based on the risk profile. That was my first real big meeting with AI. The stock market has gone down a lot in the US, as everybody knows. 
specifically NASDAQ, which is tech-driven, has gone down 33% in the year. My portfolio has gone down 9%, not 33%. And right now it's recuperated 3.8% as of today. So that was my first inkling. So AI can be used many ways. I use it creatively to serve either for mindless tasks, like for example, search ads. Seriously, do you want to spend your time writing 33 character search ads? Nah. So you go into chat and you say, listen, this is what I want. There's some other ones. Um, I use it to write like not real blog posts, but yes, the structure of a blog post. So I might go in and say, I want a 300 word blog post on X, Y, or Z. And then you get it. And it's usually okay. It's actually much better than some of the stuff I've gotten from other people that were supposed experts. So, you know, and then you take it and you take it as a structure and then you, you know, you add your personal secret sauce to it. But that's how I use it. I use it to rid myself of really dumb tasks. Just the other, uh, actually like three weeks ago, I, I was looking at numbers, just numbers. You know, Google Analytics for a client. What works, what doesn't work. And I'm looking at numbers, numbers, numbers. And I said, you know, I'm paying for the subscription anyway. I mean, 20 bucks a month, but I'm paying for it. Why not? So I take four columns of numbers. I drop it into chat. And we're talking about four columns of like, I don't know, 200 numbers each, right? And I just drop it into it. And I go, I want the, um, the correlation between all of these numbers. And then it's, okay, fine. The Pearson correlation between column A and B is so-and-so. A and C is so-and-so. A and D is so-and-so. B and C, so and so. And it, so it had all of the di different combinations, you know, A and B, A and C, A and D, B and C, B and D, C and D, all of that. And then these are the correlations. Now you look at them and now you have saved yourself a good hour of work and there you have it. Or many other ways. I, I, I use it for that. I, the, the other day I needed to do a schedule for a client and I'm thinking, how the hell am I going to put like, quarter hours without having to write code. I had no clue. I go, chat, in Excel, what is the command to build a column where every line is separated? It's a timeline, and it's separated by 15 seconds, right? by 15 minutes. And then it gives it to you. Oh, yeah, time, and then a parenthesis, three numbers. You do 15, you know, 0, 15, 0, and that's it. Boom, that's it. Saved me a ton of time. So I use it for that. I don't use it for, like, real creative because it is useless, but I do use it to give me the structure of many different creative compositions so that I can add my personal, you know, my, my secret sauce to it. It, it. it won't replace creatives. But mm -hmm. then again, there's so many creatives that are bad anyway. So, you know, like they deserve to die. Like all of these bad creatives that have cliche little ideas, uh, like, you know, come to a restaurant home cooked. Eh, he's not a creative. He deserves to die anyway. I mean, like, who writes that crap? So, yeah, it, it won't. It will not replace real creatives, but hopefully, it will replace bullshit creatives. Yeah, nice, nice. I I like it that you you know that you uh, call ChatGPT Chat. Please help me, <laughs> you know, so you name him. <laughs> Interesting, you know. I never thought about that. 
<laughs> yeah, probably it's better to, yeah, to to use chat or something like that, you know, because yeah, why not? If uh, this tool can help, then you oh, but it can it. be used. It can be used to sell. I'm doing one. I'm doing a, a an AI bot for one of my clients, um, the, the the people who do the uh, the therapy, and one of the things, and I really wanted to do it because I really wanted to do it. So. We used ChatGPT to, to do a lot of research on the ABA therapy uh, world, you know, anywhere from like what are the five top signs of autism, you know, blah, blah, blah. So all of that. Then all of that is put into a spreadsheet. The spreadsheet has the one question, but of course you need to train the AI to, to really guess your intent. So let's say, God forbid, that your child has autism. It might be that you go into a positive behavior and you say, how do I know if my child has autism? Then the bot will return the five signs of autism with a note saying, uh, these are the top five signs. Does your child exhibit any two or three of them? But it could be that you also just write in, you know, what are the top, what are the signs of autism? Not even the top five, just what are the signs? then the same bot will slightly change the heading, but it will still tell you the same information. So what I did, and we're doing this with Watson, we're doing this with IBM's Watson computer. So this is not child play, and this is not you know like an amateurish AI, this is for real. And it's a powerful, powerful tool. I trained it, I sat down for like three, four hours, writing down all of the different questions that would have that answer so that we would be able to guess the intent of the person, which is the essential of AI. You, you guess the intent of the question. But I wrote a selling point to every one of the questions. So let's say that, you know, you ask, you know, how do I know if my child has autism? And then I tell you those. Then the next thing that would happen would be, would you like to know what resources are available to you? because that would be the intent. You as a parent would definitely wanna know, one, is my, does my child have autism? Two, what resources do I have? Because I can see myself spending money on this. So what resources? So we would give you the resources. If you live in Florida, which is where the client is, there's the following available resources that will pay whatever, whatever. There's all the federal resources like Medicaid, blah, blah, blah. We would give you all of that. At the end, it's a very throwaway line that says, would you like to talk to a real person to see how we can tailor those resources to your specific case? Bam! That's selling. I mean, not only that, the money we spend, it's great because by the time it gets to the person, 70% of the stuff is absolutely resolved. The person on the other hand, you know, the parent knows the signs of autism. The parent knows what resources are available. So the person who gets that doesn't have to begin from scratch. The person who gets that, she gets to get a client that's warm, if not hot, so it's a hot lead or a warm lead, that is now very engaged with the company because the company has given her, normally it's moms, that's why I'm saying her, like dads, you know, like they're awful, like moms, they really care. So normally it's a mom and the mom already is engaged she knows the signs. She's afraid her child has autism. She knows the resources. 
and she's being offered help from somebody who's an expert in getting her resources. Tell me it's not a slam dunk. And you can only do that with AI. You, you, you can only do But when you do it, it's like perfect. I mean, it's a perfect selling tool. So I'm very up yeah. on it. I'm, I'm very up on AI. I, I was telling these guys, if I were 30 today, like for real, if I were 30, and I'm putting this to your audience, if somebody wants to hit me with it. If I were 30, I would only do AI. I would dedicate myself 100% to figuring out how to expand and extend and you know strengthen AI so that it helps everybody. But AI is from five technologies that you could say will change the, the world. I would say AI is the most powerful technology. The other one, personally, I think is 3D printing. I think 3D printing is the most powerful technology, second most powerful you've ever seen in your life. If you can imagine a ship to the moon, you don't know what's going to break, right? So you have a 3D yeah. printer, you have all of the computer plants, and then you have this mass of something. And then you say, oh my God, the door hinge broke. And then you, know, you program a door <laughs> hinge or something. But AI can really change the world in that very positive way. I'm not afraid of AI taking over. I don't think it's going to happen. I'm more afraid of many other things happening, not AI. But I think AI has the real possibility of making our lives absolutely simpler by giving us the information we really need at the moment we need it. And it doesn't compete with search, by the way. A lot of people have been saying, chat GPT will be the end of Google. I use both aggressively. I'm doing a plan right now for an AI-driven dating app out of Israel. So of all things, right? I mean, Israel, right? there's only like, what? 9 million people, 10 million people in Israel. They just know each other really well. Why would you need a dating app? But this woman drove, you know, he, she created this AI-driven app for uh, as a dating uh, app. So you use Google to identify things that are in the market. You know, what other companies are in the market, the market size, you know, what research is available, blah, blah, blah. But then you use AI for many other things. Write the ads, write blog posts, figure out, you know, from a whole bunch of... Um, variables which ones seem to be driving the decision i i, I don't see them as competing I, I i just think both of them have a place in the world you just have to know exactly what yeah awesome you know for me i couldn't agree more with all your points because you know uh when i spoke with uh some accounting companies i uh told them you need to implement ai and they replied to me, no, in our niche, we don't need it. What? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, if you don't do it today, tomorrow, your competitors will replace you. It doesn't matter what kind of niche. Of course, in marketing, we use a lot. But you can you implement in accounting. If you search on Google QuickBooks AI or uh, CostPoint AI, uh, you can see that these companies work to replace many accounting specialists because customers need it they will lose the trade if they don't implement ai and today it doesn't matter what kind of niche you have i completely agree you need to implement you need to think how you can adapt because if you don't do it others will replace you not ai others who will implement and consider ai because ai uh, is not going to destroy 
some occupations. AI is going to help to uh, create some valuable stuff yeah, by using this technology. I love it, Marcella. Awesome. And I want to ask the last question about the future. You mentioned about AI, that you need to learn AI, especially for youngsters. And I have some students in my network who don't know what to do, how to learn. And I'm interested, you know, if you started today from scratch without any experience, what will you do today to learn more about AI? How you can uh, learn this technology today? Oh, wow. By the way, just going back for a moment, I absolutely agree with you 200, 300%, <laughs> especially in accounting. I mean, like in accounting, you have to make decisions all the time. Do I take this deduction or do I take that deduction? Do I do this or do I do that? And then what is the net effect on the taxes that you pay at the end? Actually, I mean, my tax accountant is it's a good a thousand bucks just to do my taxes. So yeah, I, AI is there. So how to learn? Good question. First of all, if somebody has the perfect answer, please let me know because I want to learn even more <laughs> because it really, really turns me on. Um, I, I don't know. I, I would think at some point, hard sciences must have a place. So STEM, for example, I, you know, I, I know it's hard and it is not a fuzzy, beautiful, warm kind of answer. But I would think real deep learning programming has got to be there in the curriculum somewhere. Um, the rest, I don't know. Like I would do an apprenticeship if I were young. I would do an apprenticeship in one or two of the uh, companies that are driving AI, like, for example, opensource.ai. I would just call them up, man, and say, listen, I just want to work for you for free for six months. Just learn. Because the programming is there, so you need to know the programming. But what are the algorithms? How do you even write an algorithm that learns? And that is mind-boggling. I wish I understood it. But to be honest, all I can think about is learn how to program and go apprentice in, in like open source.ai or um, there's another company that is also really famous and I can't remember. And my neighbors there, my next door neighbors on that side, he's an investor in that company. He actually, my, my, my neighbor there, and they got more money than God, by the way. He made a ton of money. He creates uh, DAOs, uh, diversified autonomous organizations. He, he, he puts them together. He's very much in the forefront of that. And his wife was telling me how they invested in this other AI company and it's paying off really well. But I, I would say just apprenticeship there. I, I wouldn't even know how to start. And I'm, I, I don't want to apprentice anywhere right now. So what I'm doing is I'm having clients that trust me. And then those clients and I are learning how to most how to better implement AI in their day-to-day -day business. We both learn at the same time. I don't know what else to tell yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, uh, it's important to test. The best thing, what you can do, open ChatGPT, open resource, you know, and what you can do to test, you know, uh, and for example, in marketing, I usually test a lot uh, and I don't write text with ChatGPT, but I edit text with ChatGPT because uh, if I can build my thoughts, I can ask ChatGPT, please help. I have this data 
but I don't know how to say it, you know, uh, in the correct way. So I can get it. Great. Uh, and um, uh, when I spoke with accountant, uh, they told me, we don't know how to test, what to do. And I told them, okay, give them data, feed data, ask uh, to combine all this data to provide information. So you need to experiment, to ask, uh, to ask uh, many different questions. So yeah, practice, only practice, then you will get some results. Yeah, Marcella, you know, I found that you always lead me in the emergency room. You know, I need to... Uh, to digest all this information that you provide on my podcast. I love it. So valuable. It's a big pleasure to get again on my show to learn from you because you show another way how to do marketing, how to uh, use sales, you know, because uh, the era of lazy marketers is dead today. We can't use generic methods. Uh, tell our audience the best way how to keep learning from you, how to reach out to you, how to follow you. Well, you can follow me in LinkedIn, where I follow you, and I, I post a lot. Some of it is very political, and we're going through a very, very uh, difficult moment in the U.S. where everybody's divided, so I post a lot of politics. But uh, there's two things I, I'm going to start doing uh, now, because I've also spent the last year and a half just kind of traveling. I, I, I lived in Cyprus. I went to Spain. I went to London. I, I went to Marseille. Nice. So I spent some time just traveling, but I'm going to start posting more and more on my website as I transition from whatever the hell I am into a more fractional CMO um, kind of work. I'm going to start posting more of, you know, so, some of this. And I definitely welcome their feedback on any LinkedIn post. Anybody can reach me uh, via LinkedIn. I, I think it is the, uh, the easiest way unless somebody's, you know, it's msaloop at effectivemarketing.com. But um, that's a hard one. I mean, you have to memorize it or something. And effective is with an I, not with an E. Because I couldn't, I couldn't register effective as a word. They wouldn't let me. If not, I would have done it. So, um, but I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to have, I'm going to start posting more and more on my blog and on my website, which I completely redid and I'm still in the middle of uh, redoing it. Uh, don't be afraid to reach out. I'm, I'm usually good. If the uh, question is intelligent or the comment is intelligent, I will definitely answer. If it is not, nice, I won't. Nice. <laughs> if it is not. And okay, if it's really bad, guys. I will insult the, uh, the, the, the person because I'm too old to care. By so, the way, you know, I found that people the last time often use AI to write comments. <laughs> guys, it's not creative to uh, use AI, you know, chat GPT to write comments. No. So it's better uh, to have bad grammar, but to be creative than uh, the best awesome grammar, but nothing special. So yes. you need to be and uh, to use intelligence, you know, to reach out to Marcella. Uh, thanks again, Marcella. It's a big pleasure. To, I always... Yeah, I, I always enjoy to speak with you, to learn from you. Uh, guys, I'll submit all uh, links uh, to Marcella's website, to LinkedIn profile in the description below. Listen us on Apple, Google, Spotify. Thanks again, Marcella. Love it. Love it. Awesome. Great. Valuable. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure seeing you. Remain energetic and see you around then. Okay. See you guys. Thanks for listening to this entire podcast. Please rank your experience in Apple, Spotify, Google, or any other platforms that you may use. 
Also, please share your ranking mark on chat at seotools.tv to get a special gift. We'll see you soon on other valuable audio podcasts.